Hello, welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and I'll be your host for the next 25 minutes or so. Today, it's wall-to-wall anti-bribery and corruption, with a couple of very interesting stories. A bit later on, Martin Coyle will walk us through the court case unfolding in the UK involving the Eurasian Resources Group, the Kazakh mining company. And it's not what you might think. The ENRC is taking on both the UK's serious fraud office and the company's former lawyer over the relationship between those two in the course of an ongoing fraud investigation. It's a fascinating sidebar issue to a much larger case, and it tells us something about the risks associated with this area of enforcement as well as the risks of providing legal advice in serious corruption investigations. First up, though, beneficial ownership registers. They've become the new must-have for the international community. A recent UN meeting has seen several countries commit themselves to ledgers that show who owns what, something that ultimately allows for a level of accountability when crimes are committed by shell companies with unclear ownership arrangements. But getting all jurisdictions onto the same page is a Sisyphean task. MLEX has published a fine piece of analysis on this issue, with reporting from both sides of the Atlantic. And we'll speak to Annie Robertson in London in just a moment. First up, though, we're joined by Robert Thomason from the MLEX Bureau in Washington, D.C. Robert, firstly, thank you for putting this all together. But let's maybe start with defining an ownership registry and maybe give us a sense of why large companies are starting to pay more attention to this uh, regulatory tool. Well, a beneficial ownership registry is a database established by a government agency or authority that lists the human individuals who own uh, an interest or a control in a company or some sort of financial Uh, vehicle. The purpose is to eliminate anonymous shell companies that criminals and corrupt officials use to hide money. Law enforcement uh, people say that when they are investigating a crime, they often run into a dead end when they hit a shell company that is uh, owned anonymously. And the reason Big multinational bodies such as the UN and the G7 are paying attention to it is that for years countries have been developing these databases, these beneficial ownership registries, and enough countries have done it now that they believe that some global standards should be established. Mm. And Robert, this is, in a way, a remarkably simple concept, right? I mean, it's just a list of names connected to the name of a company. It's not more sophisticated than that. Not, not much more sophisticated than that uh, in and of itself. Where, where it gets a little complicated is that there was a lot of political opposition to having people divulge private, personally identifying information. And quite frankly... For a long time, there, there, were, um, there were countries and jurisdictions that uh, made money catering to people who wanted to hide funds from other countries. So, so, so that was where the complication came in. But, but, you, but you are right. The, the concept is, is, is not that hard. Mm. Okay. Now, can a register 
really stop bribery and money laundering? What are the chances of these kinds of registers actually succeeding in what they set out to do? Well, they can, uh, they, they've been shown to do well for what they are designed for, and that is to keep the illicit money out of the legitimate financial system, uh, out of normal businesses. Now, um, now criminals and corrupt officials can, can go hide their money in other fashions and go into dodgy cryptocurrency exchanges uh, and, and places like that, but that essentially means that they are trusting, the, these crooks are trusting their money with other crooks. And if something goes wrong, they do not have recourse in the courts to to reclaim the money. So so basically, the idea, and it has been you know it, it has been successful uh, to some degree, is is to eliminate the normal and legitimate financial system and business system as a means of hiding dirty money. Now, some people say that these beneficial ownership registries have some loopholes depending on how they're set up. Some countries want people with 25% ownership to register, and critics say that that is too high a bar and recommend instead that if anybody has 10% interest in a company, they should register. So, So some of the work that remains to be done to stop money laundering and, and, and bribery with these registries is to find the right threshold for registration. Okay, now tell me something about the UN declaration last week. What did it say and what is it attempting to achieve? Well, the, the UN declaration was a very broad anti-corruption statement. Uh, most notably, uh, it, it committed all of the members of the United Nations to implement a very broad range of anti-corruption and anti-bribery laws by 2030. That is, it set a deadline uh, against which they could be judged. What one, one of the things that it calls for is the establishment of these beneficial ownership registries, um, especially with, with standards that have been set up by a, a body called the Financial Action Task Force, which is a uh, international body of um, financial intelligence units and uh, financial regulators of countries around the world. So, so what, what the UN Declaration did is it established a commitment by all the countries of the world to um, to set up and maintain these registries by 2030. So uh, you're pointing, obviously, to a growing international consensus on these registries. What remains to be worked out? Well, as I mentioned in one previous answer, uh, the threshold for which the people must register, whether it should be 10%, 25% or something else. Another big controversial point is whether these registries should be open to the public or not. Uh, The UK has it open to public. Uh, other jurisdictions do. Canada is planning a registry that is open to the public, but the United States will only make its registry open to law enforcement officers investigating a specific crime and also to banks who are doing due diligence. So uh, the United States will ha- essentially have a private 
database or a confidential database. As other countries set them up, they will have to make that decision on themselves, uh, for themselves. And also uh, the international bodies setting standards will have to decide how hard they want to press for public registries. Mm. Now, you've mentioned in passing that the US and Canada appear to be moving towards the introduction of beneficial registries. What do we need to know about those two moves? Well, for, for starts, we should look for the US to promulgate rules, to, to issue rules uh, any, any, any week now, quite frankly, some, sometime during the summer. The legislation in the United States just, just went on and on and on for 10 years. And, and finally, they passed a law January 1st of this year, the last day of the Congress and uh, the previous Congress. And the, and the Treasury Department has until January 1st of next year to establish these rules to set up the, the database. So, so um, that's one thing. The, the, these rules will tell companies what will be expected of them and how much detail and, and how they are to, to register. In Canada, they, it, it's roughly the same uh, process, just, just waiting for you know, the real basic rules to come out. Robert, it has been great talking. Thank you so much for all of your work on this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Robert Thomason reports on anti-bribery, corruption and fraud from our offices in Washington, D.C. And listening into that conversation is Annie Robertson, who works on the same beat, but out of our London bureau. Now, Annie, it's great to have you with us. You heard what Robert had to say just now. Uh, So what's the position of this in Europe? What can we expect to see coming there? So the European Commission has also committed to tackling dirty money by bolstering transparency of beneficial ownership registers across the block in line with the Financial Action Task Force, as Robert um, clearly sort of explained. They have an intergovernmental policy relationship with many countries across the globe. Um, But in the EU, we should be seeing the EU's new legislative package out in early July which will set out in much more granular detail the proposals to bolster transparency. And that's something that has so far been very lacking in EU law. Now, it's safe to assume here that uh, it won't be enough for countries to simply implement or to adopt beneficial ownership registers and then it's all over and done with, there has to be some kind of ongoing engagement with the issue, right? You're absolutely right. I I know, uh, well, I'm sure a lot of countries wished that the job would be done just by virtue of setting up a register. But there's a lot more work than that. Um, Law enforcement agencies in particular will need to proactively identify ways to join up these registers so they can identify the suspicious patterns of behaviour by certain individuals purchasing luxury real estate, for example, as um, it's normally what we see, what, what we anticipate the beneficial ownership registers are really going to crack down on is luxury real estate. And that is where the majority of these funds are cleaned. And um, as we know, there are very, very expensive properties across Europe. So um, having a mysterious buyer purchase a property for £20 million, for instance, is going to be much harder to do. Mm. Has Europe made any progress on this so far? What's the state of play there? 
So the European Commission has said that it started to work on filling these information gaps of knowledge between countries, but it can take time to, to see the positive impact that it will have in the long term. It said that it's already started working this year, um, but as I said, we are still waiting for that legislative proposal to come out. Um, and the only way that it can continue to um, fill these gaps, because it's going to be an ongoing effort, will be by enacting very precise, very granular legislation that leaves no room for loopholes or exploitation by criminals. Um, because that's, um, that's, again, a huge problem that law enforcement bodies face. They can have laws enacted, but they're simply bent and broken by professional enablers, lawyers, accountants, real estate agents seeking to support their clients. Um, so there's a lot riding on this new package and the European Commission really does need to get it right. Yes, indeed. It wouldn't be the first time that lawyers have uh, found a loophole in a particular regulatory framework. But Annie, look, thank you so much for adding to our understanding of the issue. Thank you for the analysis that you and Robert have done on this. Uh, it's a great read. I'll speak to you again very soon. Thank you so much. Speak soon. Annie Robertson reports on anti-bribery and corruption from the UK. And the analysis she has written with Robert Thomason on the issue of beneficial ownership registers is ready for you to read and enjoy. Just head for our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com and click on the News Hub tab. And if you haven't already, make sure you download the special report from our San Francisco team chronicling the clash between Epic Games and Apple over access to Apple's App Store. This is, in many ways, the defining tech antitrust issue of the moment, and our team in the city by the bay has been following it from the very beginning. The special report is just a few clicks away. Coming up, a lawyer, a corruption enforcer, and an Eastern European mining company walk into a bar. The fascinating saga of ENRC's recent legal battles. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast. James Paniki with you. Thank you for making it this far. Now, here's an interesting case for you. A Kazakh mining company, the Eurasian Resources Group, has been the target of one of the longest-running and most fraught investigations carried out by the Serious Fraud Office, the SFO. That's the UK's specialist prosecuting authority that looks into serious fraud, bribery and corruption. The investigation has been going on for 10 years now, and that much is certainly clear. But our senior anti-bribery and corruption reporter in London, Martin Coyle, has been in court over the past few weeks covering not the allegations being levelled at the company, but a lawsuit launched by ENRC itself. Now, that's the UK company of the mining business, and the lawsuit is targeting both the SFO and the law firm that once represented the company in its dealings with the SFO. It's an unusual case, but luckily Martin is standing by to illuminate us on this lawsuit right now. So Martin, uh, let's start with an overview of the case. What is it about and who is involved? Hi James, yes. So Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation, or ENRC, uh, which is part of the Kazakh-based Eurasian Resources Group, um, is suing the SFO. Um, it's former lawyer's Decker, and it's um, now retired former Decker lawyer, Neil Gerrard, who all acted for them during um, an SF at the start of an SFO investigation between 2011 and 2013. Now, ENRC claims that the F SFO 
induced uh, Deckert to act in breach of its fiduciary duty towards it. And it says that Gerard leaked confidential information about ENRC to the um, SFO. Um, now, ENRC says Gerard acted against its interest to help kickstart this SFO probe, which began formally in 2013, uh, to generate large fees for himself and the firm. Uh, the SFO, Decker and Gerard deny all the claims. Um, now, the case is based on the SFO's ongoing investigation into ENRC for alleged corruption, uh, which I said began in 2013, and no one has yet been charged um, as part of this investigation. And Martin, this isn't the first time that uh, ENRC has taken the SFO to court, is it? No, it's not. There's been there's been lots of um, kind of skirmishes along the way to, to lead up to um, the case starting, but um, separately, uh, ENRC took, took the SFO to court in 2017. Uh, now, this was, um, again, linked to this um, ongoing corruption probe, and it was part of a bid to keep documents it claimed were privileged information out of the hand of the SFO. Um, it said that these documents, which the SFO were trying to use as part of that investigation, shouldn't be handed over. Uh, ENRC said um, they contained advice from lawyers and um, they, they should remain private. Uh, now, the SFO initially won that case at London at London's High Court, but um, ENRC um, overturned that ruling on appeal. So, and, and it's interesting, this week we've had um, various uh, campaign groups here in, here in the UK and um, further afield have joined together and they've, they've written um, an, a sort of open letter basically pointing out that um, ENRC has initiated what they described, a wave of more than 16 legal proceedings in the US and the UK against journalists, lawyers, investigators, contractors uh, and the SFO itself. Um, and, and they're saying that um, the SFO has had to divert significant staff time and funding away from, from this investigation to respond to the ENRC claims. Okay, so returning to what's going on in court at the moment, maybe just give us a summary of what has happened uh, so far, and what evidence we've uh, we've been able to hear in court? Sure. So um, we're now into the um, the second week. Uh, we've just had a week's break. Uh, in the first week, each side set out its case and argument. ENRC went first. It said um, that that Gerard uh, cost uh, ENRC millions of pounds in legal fees, um, effectively saying it worked against. The company to to ramp up this SFO probe back in 2011 between 2011 and 2013, uh, and it said that Gerard engaged in uh, scaremongering to boost his fees. And uh, a lawyer for um, ENRC said that Gerard um, effectively turned on his client uh, in in order to get this SFO investigation going. And it said that this led to fees of uh, it cost the ENRC fees of more than £13 million pounds, um, following an initial estimate of 168000 so quite, quite a big jump, they're saying. Now, um, the SFO and, uh, has, has said that the ENRC arguments are jumbled together and, they, and they've brought a, a hopeless case uh, against it, while um, Deckert uh, said that ENRC... Uh, ignored many, many warnings back then about the risks um, that the company faced of uh, linked to acquisitions of other companies in Africa at the time, and they, were, they, they should have been mindful of these risks. 
All right, so what is expected to happen over the coming weeks? Uh, yeah, so this week we've had ENRC's former general counsel in the, uh, in the witness box, uh, Beat Ehrensberger, and he's, he's said that Gerard, uh, although he was given permission to talk to the SFO um, in, in, the, in the run-up to this investigation being formally announced, he, he's saying that Gerard should have only been in, in listening mode and uh, effectively just scoping out what what was happening or just listening to what, what the SFO were, were, were thinking um, and, and not talking about what the company was planning to do or, or any of its issues that it faced. So going forward, we'll hear from other ENRC executives and then perhaps as we get getting to the interesting, bit more interesting bits of the trial, we'll hear from um, Mr Gerard himself and then um, we'll have uh, former SFO staff, including uh, three former directors. Okay, well, let's talk about maybe the implications for the SFO, Deckert and ENRC in the case. Obviously, this is an interesting sidebar issue, but at the heart of it, uh, there is this uh, ongoing investigation into ENRC on the part of the SFO. Yes, exactly. So, well, on a, on a purely financial uh, basis, so the, the, the claim is for, um, against the SFO is for £70 million. Pounds. Uh, so if they lose... Uh, I mean, the, the quantum will have to be um, sorted out at the end, but uh, that, that's the claim. So if, if you put it into context, the SFO's budget for this year is uh, just over £50 million. So if they are ordered to pay that money, that's quite a big chunk. They've already had to dip into extra funding to you know, defend the case. Uh, so on a, on a purely financial basis, that, that, that could be quite a heavy blow, although it's unclear whether we'll, we'll reach that figure. Um, as, as for Deckert, a figure hasn't been set out, but it could be at least at least double that uh, if, if they lose the case. But again, you know, th- th- these figures are, are, tend to be quite high, but they, they get sorted out at the end. Now, in terms of the, um, the case, it's not implicit, but it's obviously delayed the investigation. We, you know, the, the SFO started looking at ENRC in 2011. The, the, the investigation was formally... Launched in 2013, we're now in 2021, no one's been charged yet, uh, the investigation is still going on. So it remains to be, to me, to be seen how, how this will affect uh, that investigation if, if the SFO loses the case. Martin, thank you so much for uh, speaking to us uh, today and thank you for all of your coverage of this case uh, in court over the past few weeks. Thanks, James. And that was Martin Coyle, a senior MLEX correspondent covering bribery and corruption issues from London. And you can find a link to Martin's recent analysis of the ENRC case at the MLEX website. The address is the usual one, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And our subscribers, of course, have access to the two portfolios of collected reporting and analysis covering both the original SFO probe and also the subsequent legal action by ENRC targeting both the SFO and Deckert, the law firm. Now, sadly, that's all we have time for this week. But fear not, we'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time for the latest regulatory news from around the globe. From me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company this week. I hope to see you again very soon. Bye for now.